sports fans? Welcome to Pound the Rock. My name is Joe Wolfond, and I'm here, joined remotely by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. You're getting back to the uh, unique greetings, and you used superfan Randall Furman's mock uh, PTR intro from last week that we shouted out. Had to do it to him one time. Shout out Danny Green. Um, Cash, we're, we're, what, three days now into free agency? Might as well be three years. Um, you know, the dust has more or less settled. Obviously, there are a few names that are still out there bouncing around. But I think all the kind of significant puzzle pieces have fallen into place. And that seemed like a good opportunity for us to get together and just sort of rehash what's happened and run down our most interesting teams, you know, the, the, the teams that we feel have made for better or worse the most interesting moves or makeovers to their roster in this free agency period. Um, and even just like the offseason in general, I guess, going back to the draft and pre-draft. So we've picked out five teams here, um, and I'll, I'll give you the choice of where to start with those five squads. The Heat or the Bulls, I guess, made the first big splash. Well, I would say that the Heat probably got, not probably, I think the Heat, like made the biggest addition yes um yes in kyle lowry as far as the free agency period like so let's start there you could say that you know chris paul resigning in phoenix was like um just as big or bigger but as far as like an actual addition to a roster i feel like the heat were that team that made the biggest upgrade there so yeah, until a team signs Kawhi for the mid-level exception, it's, that does seem Lowry does seem to be the biggest addition to um, a team. Okay, so yeah, hit me, man. What do you, like? What do you think of what the Heat did here? Their outlook for this season, and I guess the next couple of seasons. I mean, obviously there's the Lowry addition, but they also gave Jimmy Butler a super max extension that is going to be paying him in the neighborhood of fifty million dollars in what his age thirty-seven season. What do you think of what the Heat have done here? I am hot and cold on what the Heat have done, and I think that's probably the opinion of many. Look, short term, are they better? Are they closer to um, true championship contention than they were a week ago? Absolutely. I think Kyle Lowry, even though he is not what he quite once was, is still an immensely, immensely valuable NBA player who impacts winning and is a positive contributor night in and night out, minute in and minute out, matter of fact. He is going to make the Heat so much better on both ends of the floor, to be honest with you. Just his IQ alone would be good enough for that. But in terms of his game, he's still got it. You know, P.J. Tucker, he's pretty much cooked offensively. We know that. We talked about that in the playoffs. But, you know, still, you're talking about the defensive upside of this team. And, you know, even P.J., look, is he going to be – worth 7.5 million a year whatever it is from a basketball encore production standpoint throughout the you know course of a season probably not but it's a short-term thing and this team is all in I get it I respect it I'm all for it uh, I think they added Markeith Morris as well another Philly guy who goes way back with Kyle actually so in a vacuum short term I love what they've done they you know you know how I felt already about the heat a couple years ago when they eventually went to the finals and how all in I was on that team because I thought they were like the perfect blend of good functional basketball team that could do a lot of things, especially defensively, but also 
just this like nasty, grimy, tough team that was an absolute torture chamber to play against. And you know, that, like that matters in the playoffs, as we've seen before, like that, that wears on opponents. They are now an even better version of that team this year. You know, they lock up Duncan Robinson as well. They still got the shooting like Eric Spolster was still the coach there. They, to me, have all the ingredients to go on another long playoff run. So from that perspective, you know, if the goal is to win, we know all Pat Riley cares about is stacking chips and stacking stars. They've done it. Good for them. No complaints. The flip side to that is that even in the short term, I don't think they're as good. I, I don't even know if they're as good as Milwaukee, let alone anywhere in the neighborhood of a healthy Brooklyn. And so depending on how you view them in comparison to Milwaukee, you could say that if all things being equal, everyone stays healthy, blah, blah, blah. The ceiling of this team might be the second round at most the Eastern Conference Finals. And from that perspective, it seems like a very just expensive pretender in a way, you know? And, and I don't know how many people are really talking about that angle of it. And then if you want to talk long-term, and again, I get it. If they, if they win a championship, it doesn't matter. I get that. But when we're maybe capping their ceiling at the second or third round, and talking about how boned they might be long-term, because look, man, you know this, anyone who listens to this show knows this, you will maybe like not find a person on this planet outside of his family that appreciates Jimmy Butler and everything he stands for in his game and his op- like as much as I do, you know that. But even I looked at that extension and just thought like, why? I know there was the reports that he wanted a max extension. I know maybe the Heat, you know, didn't want to go down, even have to think about going down the same road at Chicago and Minnesota and Philly went down with Jimmy where you don't, you don't, hell hath no fury like a Jimmy scorned. I get that. <laughs> but it's just like, I don't know. He still had a year left on his, like a year guaranteed, guaranteed left on his deal plus a player option. Like, was he really, really a 2022 flight risk? If you didn't lock him up to this extension now, if the team is as competitive as you plan it to be this coming season, and we know how Jimmy Butler is with his comp- and just wanting the team to win and all that, and he has the season you think he's going to have, and you're willing to pay him a year from now, like, is he really a flight risk because you didn't max him out now? I, I don't know if I believe that. So I'm looking at that Butler extension just being like, what? Like, who are you bidding against? Like, now the only thing I can think of is, is just another example of like Pat Riley, you know, and like, the whole culture thing and wanting to make sure he sends a me- like the Heat send a message to the league. They take care of their own. We know there was all the issues with Wade a few years ago. They don't want to go down that road again. I'm sure there are excuses you can come up with, but I just I did not understand the timing of that extension. I I, I didn't understand the rush to do it right now in this year. And yeah, the way I see it now is like they're obviously all in in the short term, and I commend them for that. But I don't think it's going to bear the type of fruit that the most optimistic Heat people want it to bear in the short term. And I think long-term, you know, there might be some pain. Or, I don't know, maybe we think there's going to be pain and then three years from now they're a bad team and capped out and they just get another star because it's Miami. I mean, they have definitely put together a pretty impressive track record of getting themselves out of these deep holes that they dig themselves into, you know? I think that's... Everyone sort of commends the Heat for being able to rebound after it seems like they've backed themselves into a corner and maybe not appreciating enough that they have backed themselves into those corners in the first place. But them being, you know, like a pretty savvy front office and also obviously being the desirable market that they are has allowed them, I think, to wriggle their way out of some precarious cap situations in the past. And also, you know, 
it's not out of the realm of possibility that Butler is going to continue to be a hugely productive player into his mid thirties. Um, despite the fact that he has a lot of miles on his odometer and, you know, a lot of, uh, Tibbs induced, uh, tread coming off of those tires. Like he, like, you know, by all accounts, obviously like the, the dissolution of his jump shot has been a bit of a concern, but apart from that, like, no aspect of his game has really declined at all. In fact, I think like his jump shot disappearing has almost amplified the other parts of his game <laughs> that make him such a special player, you know, like his cutting, um, his passing, his on-ball playmaking, like his defense, all those things have either essentially remained the same or gotten even better. And for now, I don't think we necessarily have any reason to believe that well, I mean, the reason to believe is like he's going to be in his mid thirties uh, on a massive contract, and and so that would tell us that the contract's going to age poorly. But even if you know, come the last season of that deal, he's not quite living up to the dollar amount. I, I don't think that necessarily matters to Miami so long as they are still a competitive team. And like you know, to your point about them maybe having a ceiling of being like a second round team, what I'd say is I think I'm putting them probably third at this point in the Eastern Conference pecking order behind Brooklyn and Milwaukee. Maybe as a regular season team, Philly is still a notch ahead of them. As a playoff team, I'm putting them a notch ahead of Philly, barring whatever happens with the Ben Simmons situation. And from that perspective, you know, I think they're they're sort of close enough to Milwaukee that, you know, a couple breaks go their way. Uh, they could potentially win a series against that team. And I think at a certain point, it's like, okay, like what's the alternative? You know, I think a team in their situation, obviously like the ideal would have just been to like open up the cap space. They could have opened up max cap space and made a, and made a run at Kawhi. Right. And like landing him would have been the ideal scenario, but it doesn't seem like that was in the cards. And so I, I think, like the the goal just sort of has to be to get as close as they can possibly get and hope to catch a couple of breaks along the way, right? And I think for this, so long as Kyle Lowry doesn't continue, like he showed some slippage last year. And if that decline sort of continues at the rate that, you know, it seems to be going at, like if he declines this year to the same extent that he declined last year, and then just sort of continues along that track, then I don't know that Miami is actually going to be as good as we or other people think they're going to be. And I don't know if the window is going to stay open as long as it seems like it might. But if that decline was maybe a bit of a mirage induced by the difficult circumstances the Raptors were playing in, being displaced, playing in Tampa Bay, not being an especially competitive team by the time midseason rolled around, getting derailed by COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Lowry is still more or less the player he was like two years ago when he was all NBA caliber. And he can sustain some level of that production throughout the three years of this contract. Then that's like a three-year championship competitive window for this team, I think. And they're maybe on the fringes of that conversation as opposed to being like right in the thick of it, the way that obviously like Brooklyn. Um, well, okay. Yeah. Honestly, like <laughs> I'm thinking about this now and like beyond Brooklyn, it seems pretty wide open 
right? No, and, and that's what I'm saying. Like even just the fringes or wherever we think Miami is in a pretty wide open East after number one, like what, 80, 85%, 85% of the league would kill to be there basically. Right. And so that's what I'm saying. I, I, I'm not hating on them for what they've done to their future flexibility or whatever. Like I commend them for going for it. And again, it's like, you know, it's also easier to go for it and, and less worrisome to have to think about that future flexibility when you're Miami. Agreed. And, and also I just think Lowry's kind of a perfect fit in terms of like what he brings offensively, I think meshes really well with that offensive system. Like he is a wonderful off ball mover, really, really good screener. And so he offers like those elements that will allow him to like blend in with the kind of unconventional motion offense that Miami runs, where it's not really like a lot of high pick and roll, but it's more of these kind of ornate sets involving a lot of off ball movement, screening, split cuts. Like Lowry's perfect for that. At the same time, I think they ran into some issues last year with a lack of like lacking an ability, honestly, to just run like basic pick and roll and be able to bend a defense that way and be able to really create advantages. Like we saw in the playoffs against Brooklyn, it's like, you know, when Milwaukee was sort of snuffing out their dribble handoffs and they had Brooke Lopez just dropping way back and they're sort of forcing Bam to just like create something on his own because all those off-ball screening actions are either just like getting switched or they're getting lock and trailed and blown up that way. Like a lot of it just came down to Bam and in some cases Jimmy to create something out of nothing. And for as good as those guys are, like minus a threatening jump shot, I think that made it really difficult, right? Like they weren't really doing a whole lot that made Miami worried. And I think Lowry brings that combination of pull-up shooting and playmaking that in a situation like that where they just sort of need somebody to initiate their offense and create an advantage... And, you know, rather than forcing Bam, who, you know, to his credit, has turned himself into a great playmaker, forcing him to just like be the guy who's constantly creating advantages for others. Like you have Lowry now who can create advantages for Bam and give him the ball in advantageous spots. Like he's going to make everybody's life a lot easier. And I just think that three man core of him, Butler and Bam, and especially with Duncan Robinson, you know, running around off of screens with, with his incredible shooting gravity. I think that's the recipe for a pretty dynamic offense. And that's a lot of intelligence and and just like skill level synergy between those three guys that I think is going to work really well. And to your point about the defense, like Lowry is now like one of the few guys on this Heat team who can both shoot and defend. Like that's been their big issue, I think, the last couple of years is, the, is there wasn't a whole lot of overlap in those, you know, in that Venn diagram. You had like the shooters in one circle and the defenders in another and like very little space in between where there's where those two circles overlapped. And now they have Lowry who can really shoot it. And despite the the slippage that I mentioned, which I think a lot of that came at the defensive end of the floor last year, um, can still absolutely lock it down. And more so as a team defender now than as a one-on-one defender, but he's still going to be able to body guys in the post and kind of containing dribble penetration, defending at the point of attack. Those aren't really his strengths, but uh, his ability to dig and to help uh, and to switch onto bigger players, I think is going to be a real asset for this Miami defense. Yeah. I mean, I think they should have an elite defense and 
I think the offensive upside is really underrated, actually, of this team, as you mentioned. The thing I love, too, even just for Lowry, is like you talk about the slippage last season and some on the defensive end. I I do wonder how much of the slippage we saw. Yeah, obviously, some of it is age. It's going to happen. But I wonder how much of it is just he was also tasked with, I think, being um, the type of offensive lead dog too many nights that he is no longer equipped to be at this age, like through no fault of his own. He's 35 years old or however old he is. And I think that burden lessens with Jimmy Butler, you know, playing beside, you know, for Butler has his own offensive limitations with shooting and stuff, but he is, you know, the best one-on-one or individual talent Lowry's played with since Kawhi left Toronto, you know, following the 2019 season. And I think, even just easing that offensive burden on Lowry, as important as he'll still be to the Heat's offense, could in turn, you know, allow him to recapture some, I don't know, defensive energy perhaps, or just like all around spunk mm-hmm. as the season wears on. And and I think that's big. Also, maybe a little bit less talked about is the fact that they retained Victor Oladipo for the minimum. Yeah. And, you know, that that's obviously disappointing from Oladipo's side, he turned down an extension from Indiana that I think was in the range of like four years, 80 million. And then he went and had a pretty disappointing season last year and got injured again, which obviously just torpedoed his market. So I can understand from his end saying, look, I'm going to take the one year deal and it's going to be a prove it season for me. And I'm going to re-enter the market and hopefully cash out and, and get paid like the player I still believe myself to be. Um, I think it could work out, you know, mutually beneficially, you know, for him and the Heat. I, I think for Miami, it's like that's pretty incredible for them to 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 be able to bring him back at the minimum, given you know the lack of wiggle room that they have uh, and the amount of money that they're paying to four players now. To have Oladipo there as a guy who I, I'm assuming is going to come off of their bench and be you know somebody who can run the offense with the second unit. Um, who can play with the starters at times and just provide, you know, a little bit of second side creation. Um, and you hope that like he still has enough burst left, like in the games that he played with Miami last year, which there weren't very many of them. I think maybe there were like four games that he played, but he was starting to develop, I think a pretty nice chemistry with Bam, like working the dribble handoff game, beating some guys on back cuts. Um, the, the shooting was an issue. Like all last year he shot the ball really, really poorly. And that's going to be a thing to watch. But, um, I certainly think there can be a role for him with this Miami team, again, on both sides of the ball, right? Because Vic is a guy who uh, can cover a lot of ground at the defensive end of the floor and as somebody who can help and recover and make some pretty hellacious closeouts. Uh, he, he's definitely going to be an asset for them. So to keep him on the minimum is, is you know, no small feat either. One last point on Miami is that I think, so in the course of like they get, Lowry, obviously, they re-sign Oladipo. Their backcourt, to me, looks really strong. I feel like their frontcourt depth has gotten thinned out pretty considerably. And even with the the P.J. Tucker signing that everybody seems so high on, which I understand why, right? Like, P.J. proved last year that in a playoff series, he can still be, like, a hugely impactful defender. If it comes down to it, like, Miami's in a playoff series against Brooklyn, I think they're going to be really glad to have Tucker to throw at Kevin Durant. But... Like you mentioned, he's cooked offensively and they have some spacing issues that he's not really going to address. And I think the same goes for Markeith Morris, who is like a, you know, a tough as nails defender who's not 
really the kind of shooter that you would hope to have in a, in a stretch big. Um, I don't know. The front court's looking a little bit flimsy to me, and that would maybe be an area of slight concern. I think the overall talent level and like level of competitiveness this team should be this year while being in Miami means that though I agree with you that the front court is a bit of concern right now, it'll be addressed, you know, in some fashion, whether that's in the buyout market, like, you know, six, seven months from now or whenever the case may be. But that's the kind of thing that just doesn't really concern me for a team this uh, attractive going into the season. Fair enough. Um, okay, let's talk about another team that kind of turbocharged its backcourt uh, at the expense of its front court, and that's the Chicago Bulls. Um, for the most part, I really like what the Bulls have done this offseason. Uh, they get Lonzo Ball in a sign-and-trade, uh, four years, $85 million there. They get DeMar DeRozan in a sign-and-trade, three years, $85 million there. And they sign Alex Caruso, for four years, $37 million. Uh, in those deals, outgoing is Thaddeus Young, Tomas Sadoransky, uh, Garrett Temple, a first-round draft pick that is either going to convey in 2025 or 2026, probably 2025, um, because it's just based on the protections on a pick that they owe to Orlando, which I think is top four protected, which uh, looking at this team, I, I, you know, I think ultimately that pick is going to convey so the pick they wind up sending to San Antonio in the DeRozan deal is going to be the 2025 first. I'll throw it to you, I guess, to start. But what uh, what do you make of the Bulls going into next season? Uh, how do you how do you assess the moves that they've made this offseason? And what do you think this team's going to look like? I think they're a lot better. I think they should be one of the most improved teams in the league, certainly in the East. They should be at least a play-in team. If not, I'd say that's a mammoth failure. And uh, in general, I like the additions. I, I mean, how can you not? Price is a sticking point for me, especially the DeRozan deal. Like, did they up their talent level? Did they get better? Yes. But giving up a first-round pick to pay DeMar DeRozan $28-plus per year for the next three years, to me, just didn't, didn't need to be done. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Thad, too. You know, yeah, and and that's the thing, man. Like a, a lot of people probably didn't watch the Bulls, you know, the last couple of years, especially if you're not a Bulls fan. And I get that. Thad Young for chunks of last season, if not that season in general, was their second best player. Like he was really important for them, and was especially important for them defensively. I know Lonzo is a good perimeter defender, but. In general, losing Thad Young and then adding the guys they added, and in particular DeMar DeRozan in that deal, like that is a huge, huge defensive drop-off. And between Levine and DeRozan and Vucevic, there's going to be some defensive struggles there. Like the team will be really good offensively, or at least they should be. They are improved in general, don't get me wrong. They are much more talented than they were last week. But they're also very very vulnerable defensively and it would not be the first time that we've seen you know a kind of like and I don't even want to like disparage the guys and say like the stars they have in saying this I just mean it like none of them are superstars when I said it wouldn't be the first time that a team built of like mediocre type quote-unquote star talent that can't defend completely bombs you know 
I don't think they're. And, I don't think they're going to completely bomb. I mean, uh, depend, I don't either. I'm saying it wouldn't would, be the first time that a team similar to this did it. You know, right. like well, what would constitute a complete bombing? Like, because I, I think, you know, I look at them now and I'm like, this looks like probably the sixth seed in the East, and maybe they have a range of like six to eight or six to nine. Like, if they, if they like lose in the play-in game, I feel like that's sort of the cutoff of where you're like, wow, this is a big failure. Um, yeah, I'd say that's pretty. If they don't, if they don't make the playoffs proper, mm-hmm. given what has been mortgaged, I'd say that's an issue. And also, just want to throw out there, like maybe this changes within a couple of days of us recording this. But like Zach Levine, you know, isn't locked up long term. He is a free agent a year from now. The way the market's going, he might be one of the most marquee free agents a year from now, and. Look, we can argue about whether or not Zach Levine is the type of star you should even be, you know, lining things up for or trying to please, but let's call it like it is. The reason the Bulls have done what they've done over the last few months, from trading multiple first-rounders for Vucevic to trading a first-rounder with Ad Young to overpay DeMar DeRozan to the Lonzo Ball deal, is to build a competitive team that convinces Zach Levine to stay. That's what they're trying to do. That's why they've shifted their timeline to the present. And so... I mean, the ultimate bomb is you don't even make the playoffs proper and you go into next summer with Levine hitting free agency. like Right. And I think, I mean, to that end, it's, I feel like they've done more or less everything they could to show Levine how committed they are to winning now uh, while he's ostensibly in his prime. And I think Levine's really good. I think there's a chance, like... I don't think he's as good as Devin Booker, but I do think there's a, there's a chance for there to be potentially a paradigm shift about him when he is finally able to operate in a, a winning environment and gets a chance to show what he can do in the playoffs. Uh, th- there will be maybe more of a recognition of the strides that he's made and the player that he's become. I, I do think the defense is a concern. I almost would have liked this team better if they just hadn't made the DeRozan deal. And there are a lot of things that I like about the DeRozan deal, which I can get into, but it just, it made maybe a certain amount more sense just in terms of a balancing the backcourt and front court, which I think now like their front court is really quite flimsy. It's a lot on Patrick Williams' shoulders. Now he's like shoring up the power forward position basically by himself. Um, Obviously, you know, TBD on Lowry Markinen doesn't seem like teams are lining up to throw offer sheets at him. So maybe he just winds up back on the bulls. I mean, maybe he takes the qualifying offer, right? Who knows? Um, But, you know, as it stands now, it's like, like Patrick Williams is is, is shoring up, you know, the, the defense in the front court. And that's just like a lot to ask of a second year player. And we're both high on Patrick Williams. Like, I think he's got a bright future, but what can he do right now for a team that's got, defensive holes in a lot of other places i'm not so sure and that's where i think you know losing thad is is really going to hurt that said like i think i I do like the derozan fit and i I actually don't think that there is too much overlap between him and levine like i think they can play together offensively very effectively um if you look at kind of where the Bulls were weak last season. I just feel like playmaking was a bit of an issue for them. And with Levine as a primary, he's gotten way better at this, but still 
not a great playmaker and a high turnover player as well. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to make DeRozan your offensive primary because there's a dude who is a really good playmaker, is a very low turnover player, had one of the best assisted turnover ratios in the league last year. And then you can kind of leverage Levine off ball, you know, and, and you sort of mitigate the lack of gravity that DeRozan has um, by putting the ball in his hands and you use Levine's off ball gravity. And I think there can be actually like a lot of synergy there between those two guys offensively. Um, and then making that all work, like Lonzo is a really, really good connector who, you know, he can play make in the open floor. I think obviously in the half court, given that, you know, with, with DeRozan, Levine, Vucevic, like Lonzo is going to be primarily an off ball player in the half court. But as far as making that next play and just sort of greasing the wheels of the offense, like it's going to be really nice to have him there as a connector. And Vooch can make those passes from the high post and he can also just space the floor. Like he's become a really, really excellent three-point shooter. So I think there's a lot of stuff they can do offensively and I have no concerns whatsoever about the Bulls on that side of the ball. But like you mentioned, the defense to me is a big concern. And like, presumably they're going to be starting Levine, DeRozan, Vucevic. Like, how good can, can your defense be when you're starting those three guys? to go back to what I was saying about like, maybe I would have liked the team or the team would have made a bit more sense before the DeRozan signing. I really liked the Caruso signing, even though, you know, that might seem like an overpay for a guy who is pretty limited offensively and is more or less just a role player, but he is exactly the kind of defender that they need. You're playing Vucevic almost exclusively in a drop. You need defenders at the point of attack who are absolutely going to hound the ball right? Who are going to be able to provide that rear view pressure, who aren't going to get screened out of the play and leave Vooch playing one on two time and time again. Like Caruso's about as good at that as anybody in the league. And I loved that signing for them, but it just feels like now he might get squeezed out of the backcourt rotation a bit just because it's so crowded. Um, I'm curious what that means for Kobe White, right? Like, is he still part of their long-term plans? Um, it's a bit of a crowded backcourt and again, like a kind of flimsy frontcourt as far as depth goes. So I have some questions. I do think they got better. I think they're going to be one of the most interesting teams in the league to watch. Um, but it's obviously imperfect in a lot of ways, you know, before even getting into the long-term implications, uh, with the salaries and the draft picks that they gave up. Yeah. They've given up three first rounders for Vucevic and DeRozan essentially, you know, see, we'll see how that turns out for them. Yeah. I mean, And that's, look, like, I have no issues with teams like, you know, surrendering future capital Mm -hmm. to go all in on the present. It's just when you're doing that, it's like, are you making the right moves? You know, like, are you are you making the right additions to make your team as good as it can be in the present? And again, I think the Bulls can be really interesting. um, But I, I do think they have a ceiling of like, maybe they could get up to like fourth in the East, right? Like, I think they could probably climb that high but that would that would mean they're finishing ahead of one of well, let's like leave brooklyn out of it then right. brooklyn's one that means they're finishing ahead of one of milwaukee miami or philly i think they could finish ahead of philly i don't think that's inconceivable like i wouldn't bet on it but you know they hit their high-end outcome then sure why not um but i do think that's their high-end outcome so you know it, it is a lot of future capital to mortgage, I guess, for a team that is, I think, absolute maximum, like, second-round team. 
at the same time, it's like, okay, well, otherwise, what are you doing? You know, what are you, what are they waiting around for? Like, what are they building towards? They'd already made the Vucevic move. Uh, it made all the sense in the world for them to kind of go all in on the present. I think once they did that, um, I just don't know if DeRozan was the guy I would have rolled the dice on as far as going all in on the present. But like I said, I do think offensively, it's a pretty good fit. And, you know, to the point of I was making where it's like, sure, is Zach Levine the type of star that you kind of do all this for to keep? It's like, look, you don't really have a choice here. <laughs> you know, the alternative is you lose Zach Levine and you got to rebuild all over again. And while everyone dreams of a rebuild leading to a Giannis and Tedekumpo, more often than not, your rebuild leads to a player like kind of like Zach Levine. Mm-hmm. And that's not even a knock on Zach Levine. He's a, he's a really good player. He's a star. He's an all-star. He's a young star. But they just didn't really have a choice. And it's a lot easier said than done. It'd be like, well, you know, Levine's not going to be the best player on a championship team. And so you don't do all this for him. It's like, trust me, the alternative is a lot worse where they are just stuck in another half decade rebuild that spits out another Zach Levine. And they're doing the same song and dance five years ago. You talk about the Bulls being, uh, you know, at best a second round team. What do you think the ceiling is for Kemba Walker's New York Knicks? Probably about the same. I don't hate what the Knicks did. I, I think like they're mostly running it back, but with vastly improved guard play, which is what they needed. I don't love the Fournier contract. I, I just think that Fournier is kind of like, okay. And to me, he's closer to being a mid-level type of player than he is to being, you know, a $20 million a year type of player. But he does address a lot of issues for them. And so does Kemba. And so, you know, as far as kind of goosing their shot creation, um, their ball handling, like Kemba immediately becomes their best ball handler. They get him on a great contract, uh, like two years, 16 million, something like that, after he gets bought out by the Thunder. I mean, that's a home run as far as I'm concerned. Like I know, you know, the injury issues have caught up with him. The explosiveness isn't quite there anymore. I don't think Kemba's like totally cooked by any means. I think he's, you know, still a really good player who fills a a specific set of needs for the Knicks that's going to be super helpful for them. Um, And obviously, if he can get back to being the kind of pull-up jump shooter that he was two years ago, as opposed to the one he was last year, that is like enormous. But even if he doesn't, I still think like that's just a huge help to this Knicks team that really, really needed uh, some better guard play than they got last year. I mean, like you're basically replacing Alfred Payton with Kemba Walker. Like <laughs> that's pretty. Have enormous. you seen the list? Have you seen the list of Knicks starting point guards since 2009? Tommy Beer tweeted it out. Uh, Chris I, Duhon, <laughs> Raymond Felton, Tony Douglas, Raymond Felton, Pablo Prigioni, Shane Larkin, Jose Calderon, Derek Rose, Ramon Sessions, Trey Burke, Alonzo Trier, Alfred Payton, and now Kemba Walker. Yeah. So. That's like that's pretty good, uh, and I think you know, as much as we can quibble about the the number when it comes to Fournier and the fact that you know, look, the the, the Knicks carved out all this cap space. Um, they moved back in the draft and punted on on one of their first round picks for this year. You know, kicked it down the road essentially to create more cap space, and then they used it to essentially like bring back a lot of the same guys, and then go and get Fournier and Kemba like. Maybe that seems underwhelming if, you know, it seemed like the Knicks were gearing up to do something bigger, but they did make the team better. And I I don't know, like, I I think, what what are the moves that you're really quibbling with here? Like, 
Alec Burks, three years, 30. I think like Reggie Bullock got the same contract. I think I probably would have rather have Bullock. Um, so would I. Especially like like if they knew they were getting Kemba, which maybe they didn't, but like getting Kemba and Fournier, I think that that almost limits like their reliance on a guy like Burks and makes it more important that they have a guy like Bullock who can essentially just spot up and hit threes at a really high rate and defend really well and was really good for them last year. I also showed some like off the dribble pop last season too. Like I think he checks a lot of boxes for Dallas, by the way, beside Luca. Definitely. So I think that's maybe like the, the biggest one where I'm like, if they were choosing, you know, between Burks and Bullock, those guys, again, got basically the same deal. I might've chosen Bullock. But apart from that, like, it's not like there's a huge misstep here. And the the one thing I think that you could look at and be like, well, they screwed up. It's just like the the opportunity cost side of things where it's like you had the cap space and this is what you did with it. But what else were they going to do with it? Like they could have rolled it over, I guess, to next summer. But and another thing is like on all those deals, on the Fournier deal, on the Burks deal, I think on the Noel deal as well, they got team options on the last years of all of those deals, which is like, it's not then a surprise to, to see those deals maybe look like overpays because what you're paying for is the optionality. And team options are really, really valuable, right? Like if those players prove worth those contracts, then you lock them in for an extra year. And if not, then you get off the money. Like you don't see a lot of team options on deals these days at all, really. Uh, and if you want those team options, like you kind of got to pay a premium. And that's exactly what the Knicks did two summers ago, actually. Like when they whiffed on KD and Kyrie, and signed all those guys like Peyton was one of those guys. Bobby Portis was one of those guys. Randall was one of those guys. Um, they sort of paid a premium to get team options on the last years of all of those deals. And, you know, it didn't work out with all of them, but obviously like they got Randall out of that summer. who's proven to be a big piece for them. Um, they extended, and just signed an extension. Yeah. They extended him for, I think they basically gave him like the maximum amount they could extend him for. So, which is fair given the player he's turned into. I did not like their first day of free agency at all because, you know, while the team options in year three are fine, I just, even two guaranteed years for all of those guys, like giving all of those guys multiple year contracts to me, even though I agree with you, like in a vacuum, I don't think any of the deals was particularly outrageous or egregious, but taken together collectively, I think if you look at what Noel, Rose, and Burks gave them last season, it was all good. And it was insane surplus value because those three guys combined to earn less than, I think, 18 or 19 million last year. Bringing all three of them back on multi-year deals where now they're combining to earn about 35 million a year and then giving like 20 million a year to, to Fournier, it just shifts a lot, you know? It, it's one thing to be an overachieving team with Noel, Rose, and Burks kind of giving you surplus value on team-friendly deals. It's another thing to maybe buy into that 2021 success too much and end up now committed multiple years where you're paying the combination of Fournier, Noel, Rose, and Burks $55 million, essentially half the salary. To me, that's that taken together, it's outrageous. But getting Kemba on insane value... At what 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 did it come out to? Nine mil? Eight or nine, yeah. That was... Right. Like that undoes a lot of the outrageousness of it. You know what I mean? Cause now it's like you got those five guys combined for like less than sixty-five mil. So it it changed the equation a lot. Mm -hmm. I I pretty much hated their first day. 
obviously liked their third day getting Kemba at that value. And it's like, yeah, do I think Kemba's the player he once was? Of course not. It's, it's obvious he's not. And if his knee is as bad as like Boston seemed to think it was, then, you know, it, he's not going to be able to do as much as he'd like to going back to New York and his hometown, which by the way, just in general, how fun the garden sounded last year, apart from how ridiculous they were to Trey Young. Just imagine now Kemba having even like a couple of good games there, you know, back in the guard. It, it's going to be really fun to even just hear that crowd on TV. So yeah, like even if he's not the player he was, at that value, he doesn't need to be. He doesn't even need to be anywhere close to it. He's going to be an upgrade at the point. Mm-hmm. He's going to give them probably the best guard play they've had in over a decade. They ended up making out well in the end. And, um, and then I think too, even extending Randall, like... Because individually, none of their contracts are egregious. Like they're still, I think, in the market to if they were to, you know, package some of these contracts as salary matching fillers with Barrett and some of their young talent. Like I think they're still in the market to potentially land a star, you know, whoever that may be. Yeah. Or Mitchell Robinson. I mean, I I don't know what his value is like around the league, uh, especially given like the injury concerns that are now starting to creep in. But, um, but that's still a young player with, I think, a lot of defensive upside who, at his best, has looked like, you know, a, a guy with the potential to grow into one of the better rim-running, rim-protecting centers in the game long-term. Like, his measurables are still off the charts. Um, and as mistake-prone as he is, like, the raw physical tools and the rim-protecting ability are pretty ridiculous. Um, I don't know if he's part of their long-term plans. And maybe, like, the pretty sizable deal they gave to Noel is perhaps an indication that that they're not so sure about Mitchell Robinson either. Whose future, like from here and going forward, would you rather have right now, Knicks or Bulls? Um, I think probably Bulls. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because even even with the uncertainty, like just going by what you know now, the uncertainty around Levine, the the picks. No, I think Levine winds up staying, and I just like as far as. Like what? I don't know, man. I, I'm. I like R.J. Barrett. I don't like if you put the over under on R.J. Barrett All Star appearances at one point five. I probably take the under. Obviously, Randall is a fantastic story, and I don't think that like the player that he was in the playoffs last year should you know define him. Like I think we should still pay attention to what he did in the regular season. And the, the very meaningful improvements that he made as a playmaker and as a jump shooter, especially. But I just don't, there's nobody there that I look at and I'm like, okay, this is somebody that you can build a, like a sustainable winner around. Whereas with Chicago, I just kind of like the infrastructure more. And I think there's like a much better chance that like that core coalesces and like for the next three years or so, they're like, you know, reliably a team that's competing to be in the top half of the Eastern Conference. Whereas with the Knicks, I feel like the, the ceiling just feels a little bit lower to me there. And I also think there, to me, there's like a lot of reason to think that they overachieved significantly last year from like, I think they shot the ball over their heads and like their opponents shot the ball so terribly. I think their competing shot profiles <laughs> indicate some major regression. is coming. Right, which to me is like, I, I do think the team is quite a bit better now. And I think it's possible that they still wind up with a worse record next year that they <laughs> than they had this year. So yeah, to me, it's just like a, a ceiling versus floor question, I suppose, where the Bulls, I guess there's some disaster potential in the sense that if it doesn't work out, they're a little bit boned. Um, 
you know, looking ahead to the future. Whereas like with the Knicks, it'll, they're a little bit more flexible, right? And like, they're going to be able to pivot and do some interesting things. Um, if things don't work out for them this year, like they're not locked into the core in the way that the Bulls are. But I just think as far as upside, I, I like Chicago's outlook a little bit better. What about you? I think I lean Knicks because of the just uncertainty, not even around Levine, but around like the future in general and being out picks. And I don't like the idea of a team ceiling being still so far from true contention while also having so much of their mortgage, uh, so much of their future already mortgaged. Mm-hmm. I just like don't like that combination. And while I don't think the Knicks are necessarily close to true contention, I do think that they're a lot more flexible in terms of their ability to still get there with this with semblances of this core, with pieces of this core, or to like completely flip it if they need to. And I just like that flexibility for a non-true contender, you know, and the Bulls just don't have it. All right, let's take a really quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk about the last two teams on this list here. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, two teams left. Most interesting team teams of the offseason so far. What do you think of what the Lakers have done? <laughs> I, we, we talked a lot on the last episode about the Westbrook trade, so maybe we can skim over that. Obviously, that has a lot of tendrils that connect to what they subsequently did in free agency. But what do you think of what they did in free agency, I guess, in conjunction with that trade? Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, Ellington can shoot. Yep. Baysmore, none can shoot. Yep. Monk Monk might minimum, be able to shoot. <laughs> yeah. Monk on a minimum is that's great value, I think. Phenomenal. Howard Howard, if he, you know, just kind of continues to be like a solid defensive big, you know, who cleans the glass and fills his role as he did very admirably for them. That's part of a championship team a couple of years ago. Like fine. Yeah. Actually, um, okay. So sorry. Very quick interlude. Um yeah. because the the Sixers and Lakers basically just like swapped backup centers. Yeah. Do you think that Andre Drummond is better than Dwight Howard? Right now? Yeah. Honestly, man, I might say no. And I know that's crazy based on where they are in their careers. But like... I was just I, like, I was just trying to think about what does Andre Drummond do better exactly. than Dwight Howard? And it's like he can pass better than him 100%. I think he's maybe like a little bit better as far as like if he has the ball in a late clock scenario, like maybe he can manufacture a bucket, which is not something that you really want to rely on either of them to do. But I think maybe you have a little bit more faith in Drummond's ability to do that. Apart from that, like I think Howard's probably just as good a defender at this point. Um, And I think they're, you know, equivalent rebounders. I might even like Dwight better as a rebounder. And yep. also Dwight... I think he's a better team rebounder. I think Dwight's a better team rebounder. Yeah, and and Dwight has like an element of, of vertical gravity that Drummond doesn't. So I just think it's interesting. Like those teams essentially wound up swapping backup centers. And uh, as much as like the counting stats would point in Drummond's direction, I don't know that there's a whole lot to differentiate them. Yeah, and I think an important distinction as well is that Dwight at this point in his career 
knows his role and I think understands the player he is and isn't. Took a while for him to get there, but he does. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Drummond's there yet. Well, uh, he, now he's signed with Philly, which means that he's signing up to get 15 minutes a game at best. Right. So that, so that suggests that maybe he's starting to understand. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd lean Howard right now. In terms of the Lakers as a whole and what they did, like, I don't think, look, it's not going to, it's never going to be as bad as the memes and social media would suggest it, it would be when you consider, you know, like the old age home jokes and all that stuff. And I know even the mellow LeBron thing, but like, it's also nowhere near as good as, you know, the people that just see it as like, whoa, LeBron and Carmelo and they got Dwight Howard back. And like, they just kind of like hear the names and think, oh my God, the talent, like it's somewhere in the middle. And I think on the whole, it's probably mediocre, but Again, Bazemore, Ellington, none can shoot. Malunks, uh, Malik Monk's like good value on his deal and some upside, I guess. You know, Ariza himself, we talked about Tucker earlier. Like Ariza looked cooked at, at times last season too. Um, but still like at worst, he's a capable defender. Still some shooting pop at his age. I don't know. Like, do you, do you think they've done enough to replace the defensive contributions of guys like Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Kyle Kuzma? you know, who were traded in the Westbrook did losing KCP Kuzma and Caruso defensively is really, really tough to overcome given the guys that they <laughs> replaced them with. Like, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say this team should be worse defensively than they were last year when they were the best defensive team in basketball. I have some concerns there shooting wise. Like I get like, they definitely have more shooting upside, but I don't know, like as presently constructed, I think they enter the season with more star power maybe more like total upside talent wise, but also with like a less functional roster with much less defensive upside. So I don't know. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. I put it in the the day one free agency wrap we posted uh, earlier this week, but like the fact that they reportedly <laughs> promised or, you know, are banking on Kent Bazemore filling a quote unquote major role for them this season, I think is a little concerning, but yeah, I don't know, man. I, I think there's just like a lot of pieces and I'm still trying to piece it together in my mind. But I think the overall takeaway is that they've got more, technically they have more top end talent, but I think they have a less functional roster and less defensive upside. And it might not matter anyway, because they still have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Right. And if they're healthy, they can win the championship regardless. But I don't think they're as good. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting. Like they clearly prioritized improving the offense at the expense of the defense, right? Like they they knew they needed to get more shooting. Uh, you know, they did that in in acquiring Ellington, Nunn, even Mello, man. Like, Mello shot 41% from three last year. And obviously, like, he was dining out on a lot of open looks because Dame was consistently drawing two to the ball. But LeBron is going to be able to do the same thing. And I think Mello will continue to have a lot of open three-point looks that he has proven capable of knocking down. And as long as the Lakers don't fall victim to, you know, what some teams have fallen victim to in the past, where they're kind of catering to mellow because he's mellow and overplaying him as a result, I think he can be, you know, like a, a pretty nice contributor for them at like 15 minutes a game. Um, but like the defensive question marks now become real, right? Like you're, you're banking on LeBron and AD to clean up a lot of messes because things have gotten considerably weaker at the point of attack. And like, Ariza, Bazemore, those guys have good defensive reputations. I actually think Bazemore defended pretty well with the Warriors last year. Ariza is definitely getting up there in years, but like it's still fairly solid, I'd say, defensively. But like those guys aren't changing your life defensively. Like they're not making up 
for the leaks that I think the Lakers are going to spring now by having Westbrook um, and Malik Monk and Kendrick Nunn now at the point of attack instead of the guys they had there before. Um, so I think that the big question to me is like, okay, have they appro- improved enough offensively to offset uh, the, the step back that they've taken defensively? And I'm not entirely sure. Like I said, when we talked about the Westbrook trade, obviously I think this team is going to butter its bread in transition. I think Monk actually helps that a lot. Like he's a really good open floor player. Um, the shooting with him is something that we're just going to have to wait and see. Like he, he was like a 32% career three-point shooter coming into last season. And then he had this, you know, potentially outlier season where he shot 40% from deep, you know, or maybe that's just a sign of improvement and a, side of, uh, a sign of things to come. Um, but apart from that, he's a guy who can do some stuff off the dribble. He can really get to the rim, uh, you know, has the makings of like a three-level scorer if he can continue to build on the season he had last year. But definitely some defensive question marks there and, and some questions about whether the jump shot is real. I mean, the Hornets, after he had that career year, didn't even qualify him. So maybe that's a sign that the Hornets don't know what they're doing, or maybe it's a sign that like they have reason to not particularly believe in him and he's not going to help the Lakers as much as it seems like he might. Um, and I think, you know, it's just, yeah, they they added this shooting, right? They add Ellington, they add Monk, they add Nunn, they add Mello. Like, all those guys can shoot. But does it really matter at the end of the day if, like, Russell Westbrook is playing 36 minutes a game? You know what I mean? Like, I just, I'm just not sure what that ultimately amounts to. Like, I still think this is going to be one of the poorer and lower volume three-point shooting teams in the league. So it's good that they added the shooting, but I don't know that it actually makes them a good shooting team. Like, they're still going to rely on beating teams up inside, which is fine. Um, no, that's their identity. Yeah. Um, but I just think, like, they're really relying on their offense to take a huge step forward. And I have some questions about whether they're going to be able to do that. But like you said, healthy Braun and AD still makes a championship contender. Uh, I do think it's fair to ask if that's a reasonable expectation at this point in time with LeBron being 36 and the injuries starting to pile up. And like, that's not the kind of thing that slows down as you get older. If they are healthy, given the state of the West right now, which, you know, we'd be going into it with Kawhi's status for the season as a whole unknown. Mm -hmm. If the Lakers are healthy as presently constructed, do you still consider them the best team in the Western Conference? I don't think, uh, no, I don't think so. Who would you say is? Phoenix, oh, man, Denver, my Murray, you know, we don't know when Murray's going to be back. That's the Utah. thing. It's like, yeah. Like, okay. So like if Murray's back at full strength, I'd probably say Denver. If Kawhi's back at full strength, I'd probably say Clippers. There's so much that's up in the air right now. Maybe it's Utah. Like as much as like the, you know, the sort of lack of top end talent is still a bit of an issue for them. Like that's a really, really good team that, you know, if Mike Conley hadn't been hurt for that second round series. I don't think it's out of the question that they could have found themselves in the finals. Yeah. I do think the Suns are still going to be in that mix. I don't know. It's a, it's a really good question and a tough one to answer. I mean, maybe, maybe the default should just be the Lakers because they still do have like the best top end talent by, you know, an order of magnitude. So I really don't know. But even if I was saying like, yeah, the Lakers are the best team in the West, I'm saying that with like such a low degree of certainty you could call them the favorites, I guess, but in no universe would I like take them over the field. You know, I think it's pretty yeah. wide open. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And you know how bullish I've been on Lakers over the field over the last couple of years. So that kind of tells you how 
not out, but down I am on what they're doing there. Yeah, I do want, like, could the Warriors maybe vault themselves into that conversation with, with I th- the trade? I think they can. I think they can. Like, as presently constructed, I don't think they're there, but... Healthy? You don't think, as presently constructed, the healthy Warriors can get in that mix? I don't. I mean, given all the... Ca- it's so much is, is like, dependent on, on what Clay looks like when he's back. Sure, yeah. And even if, like, if he's the exact same Clay that he was last time we saw him, when he was lighting up the Raptors in the 2019 finals, if he's that guy... I still, <sighs> I think if he's that guy, the Warriors are right, not back to like 73 mm-hmm. juggernaut, but they're right back to being like contenders and near the top of the West. Maybe. Especially given the uncertainty around Denver and the Clippers. Yeah. But then even still, like Draymond's still obviously like an elite, elite defender, you know, maybe probably like was still one of the top three to five defensive players in the league, but like his offensive decline is yeah. significant and... I don't know. I obviously I don't think it's likely that Clay Thompson is exactly the same guy that he was when we last saw him, given the two injuries that he's coming off of. So I, I, it's just hard for me to put them in that mix without them actually swinging a trade for like another offensive creator. Because um, even Clay, it's like yeah, he's an incredible shooter, magnificent off ball player. I think they still need another creator. Like they still need somebody who can do something when Steph is off the floor, or who can, uh, you know. Obviously, like Draymond, when they're on the floor together, can run the offense when Steph is playing off ball and like capitalize on Steph's off ball gravity. But um, I don't know if they have enough like supplemental creation and ball handling and shooting uh, as things currently stand. So, um, yeah, if they trade for Bradley Beal, then I'm in. But doesn't seem like that's going to happen. All right. Last team here. New Orleans Pelicans. Um just a sort of roundup of their moves. Obviously, the, you know, the big trade that they made happened before the draft. Um, they offload all this salary in the form of Bledsoe and Steven Adams with a first round pick going to Memphis. Uh, they also get JV in that deal, which I thought was a really nice piece of business for them. They sign and trade Lonzo to Chicago. They get Tomas Sadoransky and Garrett Temple. I don't know why I have such a hard time saying Sadoransky's name. <laughs> like uh, they get Sadoransky and Temple in that deal. Um, and then they use like, you know, all the space that they've cleared. I think there was talk about them going after Kyle Lowry. There was talk about them, in, you know, being interested in Chris Paul. And so from that perspective, it may seem like a, a disappointment that the guy they end up with is Devonte Graham. I like Devonte Graham in New Orleans. I think that's a really nice fit. And especially on the contract they got him at four years, 47 million, they do give up another first round pick to do it. So in totality, what they've done is uh, traded uh, Lonzo, Steven Adams, Eric Bledsoe, and two first rounders for JV, Devonte Graham, Sidoransky, and Temple. Uh, that's and, bad business. And then TBD on Josh Hart, who um, I'm assuming they'll, they'll still try to bring back, but he, you can say that's bad business and, and maybe you're right, but you know, to me, the only way this Pelicans team is going to be measured for the next couple of years is are they making the roster make more sense around Zion? And I do think this off season, they have improved things in that regard. Um, but I don't know. Do you disagree? <laughs> you think like it would have been hard, I think for the roster around Zion to make less sense than it did last year. And maybe they overpaid just to make the roster like a little bit better around him. But, but I, I kind of, I don't know. I kind of like how it's looking. Stylistically, like in terms of the way the talent fits, is it possible 
maybe even likely that this fits is a better fit, you know, even Devonte. Sure. But when I think when you just look at like the moves that you listed, you know, in the aggregate, I don't think the fit is good enough or enough of an upgrade or that they're better even by enough of a margin or maybe at all to justify. And I know like they, they still have a plethora of picks because mm-hmm. of the AD trade and stuff. It's not like they've like mortgaged the future or anything like that, but still picks are picks. And I think, I don't know. I, I don't think they improved by any considerable margin to the point where I can look at the moves they made and say, all right, giddy up. Like they're doing it. They're putting some talent around Zion. And uh, I don't know, man, given some of the reports out there about Zion, like early this year, like, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm starting to worry, starting to worry about the big easy. Okay. You, you told me in uh, a text message exchange that you thought Zion was going to, was going to ultimately take the qualifying offer and then just hit free agency after five years. I think, I think he might be the first guy to finally do it. You really think a player with his injury history is going to do that, is going to sacrifice potentially that much guaranteed money. I don't know, man. Who knows with kids these days? I just <laughs> no, think but, it's, it's way too big of a risk for him. I mean... Oh, it'd be a massive risk. Yeah. And I, to be honest with you, the one thing that's keeping me from going all in on that take is his injury history and thinking he might just want to lock it down. Yeah. Um, I do think like the, the, the Jordan brand money, you know, like the, his endorsement deals and, and his off-court stuff helps. Because he's a lot further along from that perspective than most guys are his age, even stars. Yeah, but the, but the yes, other thing like, you have to consider is like it's not—he's going to be eligible for a max extension after this season. Okay, correct. so it's not even just like he—he's making that gamble, uh, looking one year ahead and being like, "I'm going to play out this one season and hit free agency." He's—he's he's looking two years ahead. He's got to get through two seasons after this one before getting to free agency. And so you're talking about him turning down. Uh, you know, a max extension that's going to be worth, um, I mean, like if he makes all NBA this year, like could be worth something in the realm of like $170 million. He's going to turn that down for, I don't know, man, like for, for, so another year on his rookie contract and then the qualifying offer, which coupled together is something probably like in, in, in the range of like 20 odd million. That's I, I don't see it happening. I'd peg it at less than fifty percent for sure. I'd say he's of the stars we've seen come along. He's the most likely out of any of them we've seen yet to do it. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so I, I think that I think you can argue that Lonzo is a better player than Devonte Graham. I think Devontae Graham is a better fit on this Pelican. Yeah, that's team. fair. I think like his ability to create off of the dribble, uh, his pull-up jump shooting ability, like the big the big issue with Devontae is like he can't score inside the arc at all. Can't finish at the rim, doesn't have a mid-range game, doesn't really have a floater game, is sort of confined to scoring on the perimeter. Guess what? I don't think that matters that much for this Pelicans team. Like they got fucking Zion and JV. Like, they're going to destroy teams on the interior. And I think really all they need Graham to do is be that pull-up jump shooting threat who's going to be able to bend a defense, maybe get two on the ball, and open things up for those guys to roll to the rim. 
And I think he's capable of doing that. And he's also, you know, on top of being a great jump shooter, he's a good ball handler and a good playmaker. And I think he just brings a lot more half court advantage creation than Lonzo was bringing them. And I think that, um, you know, he's also a really good catch and shoot guy. So he's going to be able to take advantage of, of Zion's gravity as well. Like, I think that makes that offense make a, a whole lot more sense. Now, the Pelicans were very bad defensively last year, and going from Lonzo to Devontae Graham doesn't help in that regard. But I don't know, man. And, and like going from Adams to to Valanchunas, like it doesn't entirely sort out the spacing issues, but JV is just a way, way better player than Steven Adams at this point in time. And like... Him and Zion are going to maul teams on the offensive glass. Like this team is going to create so many extra possessions that I don't know. I I kind of expect them to have a top five offense. And so maybe the defense continues to be bad, but like if you have a top five offense, I think you're, you got a pretty good chance to make it to the playoffs. Yeah. And I do think like even some of, look, some of Devontae's when the, when the inside the arc numbers are as bad as his are, you know, it can't just be chalked up to supporting cast. But I do think having Zion and even just some of his role gravity and just like a target that he's never had, honestly, that few guards have in the league, I do think will help Graham in a lot of ways as well. Unlock some of his game, you know, make him more efficient himself. Uh, but yes, on, on the whole, I agree with you that he's not he's not as good as Lonzo, but a better fit. You know, JV's better than Adams, but I think spacing issues are still a massive concern there. They will maul teams on the inside, but I don't know, like how long can you do that? I mean, after we just talked about the Lakers, who technically rode it to a championship with obviously two guys of different levels, but I, I don't know, man. I'm I'm so like how, how good do you think this Pelicans team can be? Um, with with say with what what you envision say their upside mm-hmm. top five offense brutal defense another step from Zion yeah a a better fitting but still not great roster around him we haven't even mentioned Brandon Ingram like what what's the upside here I th- in a West that we did say is kind of not wide open but mm-hmm. more open than maybe people think it is I, <sighs> absolute best case scenario with this roster as it currently stands I think like forty seven wins. So probably a play-in team. <laughs> well, 47 wins can get you into the playoffs. Well, is that getting you to the top six? Maybe not. But In the West? But whatever. Yeah, like I think a team that will make the playoffs proper in the West uh, and probably lose in the first round. But like, um, I, I, I almost kind of think, you know, unlocking the best version of this team will require them at some point to just trade Ingram you know, for, for a player that just makes a little bit more sense. Like Ingram's really good. Um, and I think, you know, his ability to, to be a creator and potentially an offensive primary, although I don't love him as a primary, like, which is kind of my point, I guess, like Ingram wants to be an offensive primary. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing when he's playing alongside Zion and the Pelicans obviously are making a point of like, you know, running point Zion, like getting him used to being an initiator and creating with the ball in his hands and running pick and roll. And then Ingram's doing what exactly off of the ball, you know, like I think to move him for a player or a package of players who are going to help them defensively while maybe serving as better wheel greasers offensively and, and better off ball players next to Zion offensively. I think that's the the move or the type of move that could really get this Pelicans team to a place where the ceiling 
is quite a bit higher. Um, but as of now, yeah, I think like the, the defensive concerns limit, I guess, what they're ultimately going to be capable of. But I do think the offense is going to be very potent and and should be good enough. Like they should make the playoffs this year. I think if they don't, it'll be a huge disappointment. Yeah, I'm not convinced they will. <laughs> well, I'm not convinced they will either. I'm just saying they should. But like the West is super competitive, obviously. And there are a lot of teams that are going to be vying for it. I mean, I'm sort of looking at it now. And it's like, I don't think the Spurs are going to be uh, the play-in mix. No, this the Spurs season. are going to be trash. The Spurs are going to be awful. They're going to be one of the worst teams in the league. Um, so I think you take the Spurs out of that mix. I think Memphis is taking a step back. Yeah, probably. Like, I, I've said it, you know, I said it on the last episode. I didn't like the deal they made with the Pelicans. So I think you maybe get them out of the way. Um, and and like the the road should be clear for the Pelicans to make it into the top eight. But um, we'll have to wait and see. I just think, uh, I think it was an interesting off season, not a clear cut win or a loss, but just interesting for that team. Um, so we can probably wrap it there. Um, you got some fan shout outs for us this week. Yeah. One fan shout out to be honest with you. I thought we shouted him out before. Cause I know he's one of our OG fans, but we apparently haven't. And he did let us know about it on Twitter. Sylvester Valderrama, who uh, interacts with us on Twitter a lot at Slyboy underscore 22 on Twitter, uh, did write to us say he didn't think he's gotten a shout out yet, but that he found the show after just three episodes, went back, listened to those first three and has been a subscriber ever since. And here we are 191 shows later at episode 194. Sylvester is still with us. Uh, based on his Twitter, seems like he's located somewhere in California. Sylvester says he loves the show because it feels like having high-level hoops talk with a couple buddies. Uh, that's the only fan shout-out for this week. We will get more next week. Do want to remind everyone, reach out on social media. Let us know how long you've been a fan, where you're listening from. We will get you a shout-out. But I did want to mention one more thing, and I don't know if you caught this, Wolfon, but uh, for anyone who listened last week, our hilarious podcast review from Silver Gleaming Death Machine via Apple Podcasts, have you seen? Do you know what I'm about to say? He updated know. He updated the review. Oh, baby. Let's go. He updated the review, and Wolfon has been bumped from a three to, drumroll please, 3.75. Woo! Let's go! Silver Gleaming Death Machine writes, update after pod shoutout. Have to say, the genuine fan engagement won me back, Wolfon, bumping it up to 3.75 and rounding the pod up to five overall. Unfortunate that I pr- proved negative feedback draws more attention than the fully positive review also posted. That is a very astute observation, and you're not wrong about that, Silver Gleaming Death Machine. But he writes, I do appreciate your nuance. Cash's rants are just more my style. Though, as you pointed out, balance in all things. Thanks, guys. Silver Gleaming Death Machine upped his Wolf on rating, upped Pound the Rock's overall rating. Thank you. Listen, man, I think from here on out, we got to just address any piece of negative criticism we get in any review to get them to bump those yeah. those ratings up to five stars. Apparently, this works. Yeah. Um, all right. That's awesome. That's probably yeah. a good place to leave it. Uh, thank you all for listening. And as Cash said, positive feedback, negative feedback. <laughs> feel free to get in touch and uh, we will address it in one form or fashion or another. Um, with that, uh, for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolf on Pound the Rock. 